All right. So, and let me get my, I can't see my face up there now. I don't know what happened to me. Well, I guess I don't need to see me and I can't see you either. So that's the only part I was trying to see. Let me see if anybody's, oh, everyone's got their cameras off. That's why. <laughs> well, praise the Lord. All right. So Isaiah, um, he's the first major prophet, so to speak, in the Old Testament, because, you know, the Bible consists of minor prophets and major prophets, and it's the only one of the most um, quoted books that is from the Old Testament that we find in the New Testament. Um, in the eighth century is, uh, you know, 700 years before Jesus was born. This is when this is taking place. And so many things were happening around the world that changed the course of history. The city of Rome um, was being founded during that time, along with Athens and um, Sparta. And a baby boy uh, was born and he was given the name Isaiah. And so his name means salvation of God. And Isaiah, he actually, this is interesting. He grew up in the royal court. So his parents were related to the king. His father, Amos, or Amos, or however you would say that, I'm not sure. But Amoz was the brother of um, the king of Judah. So he grew up in the upper echelon of society and in a wealthy family with access to the royal court all of his life. And then later in life, um, Isaiah married a prophetess, which we know, you know, just simply means that she was a woman that God used to give his word to the people. And have you ever heard the verse quoted, here am I, send me? Well, it's from Isaiah um, chapter six, verse eight. And I also think of um, the, the word you might have heard, uh, do you not know, have you not heard? Well, that comes also let me click and put it up here on the screen from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 21. And again, uh, in Isaiah 53, five, we find the scripture, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah 55, verse six and seven. What I'm doing is just giving you some that you would be familiar with in the book of Isaiah. So here's another one. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God and he will freely pardon. So I could go on and on citing passages from Isaiah that we are familiar with because they're quoted often, but there are other parts of Isaiah that are not actually well known and we've missed a lot because we only sometimes go so far as our favorite verses. And so the book of Isaiah, it could be um, described as the entire Bible summarized because there's an obvious division within this particular book of the Bible and it's dividing it into two parts and, and how it gets divided is, divided is chapters one to 39 and then chapters 40 to 66. And the two sections, they actually differ in the subject matter, the content, the atmosphere, and even the tone. And it's interesting that there just so happens to be 39 chapters in the first section and 27 chapters in the sec uh, second. And the Bible, you know, we have it has a total of 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. Find that pretty interesting. And so I, I want you to notice also 
that the first 39 chapters of this book, they have the same atmosphere as the Old Testament. And then the second section of the 27 chapters following have the atmosphere of the New Testament. And I'll give you a little illustration. You know, the book of Isaiah begins with the sin of the people. Well, so does the Old Testament. Right from the beginning in Genesis 3, it's about sin. And the first section of Isaiah ends with a promise of a coming king who's going to redeem Israel. And then the entire Old Testament, you know, talks about the coming king. The second half of the book of Isaiah begins this way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. In the New Testament, Mark begins with John the Baptist and uses those exact words of him the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So Isaiah 53 is about um, the cross when you get to this point in, in the book. And halfway through the New Testament, we find chapters on the cross. The book of Isaiah actually ends with a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. Well, the New Testament also finishes with a vision of the new heaven and the new earth. So there are many you know, additional parallels that I could also go on and on about. But just as many people find, you know, the New Testament easier to read than the Old Testament, it's also the same with the book of Isaiah. The first section is heavier, and so it's harder reading, so to speak, than the second section. But just as we understand the New Testament best when we have the knowledge of the old, we understand the later chapters of Isaiah best when we've gone through the earlier ones. When Jesus was on earth, he taught, you know, I'm quoting him. He says, search the scriptures for they are about me. They bear witness of me. Well, the only scriptures they had when he said that was the Old Testament. And of all the books of the Old Testament, this one says the most about Jesus. His birth is in here. His family background is described. His anointing with the Holy Spirit is given in detail. His character, his simplicity. And his gentleness, they're all described here. Chapter 53 talks about his suffering on the cross. His resurrection is in here as well as his death. And his future reign and glory is described perfectly here. So before we look further into Isaiah, I'd like to just recap and, and give a brief historical background of where the children of Israel had been, which we all know because we've been following the story, but we've kind of like gotten into the Psalms and, and Proverbs and into some other side notes as we're in the scriptures of wisdom and, and such. So I, I want to recap. So here we are at this midpoint in our study that we're just remembering um, what we have seen and learned so far from God's people and what we've been reading. And so, you know, to look at where, you know, uh, God had brought them when Isaiah comes onto the scene. So now that we've gone over bits and pieces of this history, um, we need to truly understand this history and the future for the people of God. So that's really why we're recapping here. So all the history is actually our spiritual heritage. And so that's another reason we need to be interested in these things as we're reading of the children of Israel. This is the family we've been adopted into, grafted into this family of God. And so this is why the scripture also says, not all Israel is of Israel, because we've been adopted in. So this is your spiritual family we're learning about when you're reading this as well. 
So we, we all know that the Israelites went into slavery in Egypt. And at that time, they had no land, no name, no government, no king, nothing. They didn't have anything. But then their history started to climb up. And Moses leads them out into Canaan. And they drive out the Canaanites as, well, God helps them drive them out. And then judges get appointed by the Lord. He appoints them to rule over the people and to help fight their battles. Then Samuel, the prophet, you know, he led them. And through him, they got their first king until they reached a peak that was under King David. And never had they had such peace or prosperity up until that point that King David was reigning. And so to this very day, the Jews will look back at David today, even as the king of their golden age, so to speak. And that's why they've longed for another king like him. But as soon as David died, they begin to go downhill. And Solomon ends up getting led away, led astray by his many wives. Some of them were from the other nations. And as soon as Solomon died, um, there was a civil war, remember? And from then on, the nation became two nations. So this is where we're at in the recap. It became Israel in the north um, and Judah in the south. So it was the two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, and then the 10 tribes uh, were the other tribes. And so they even fought one another. And that's what we see in the scriptures. The people of God were divided. And so Israel, again, with the, the 10 tribes in the north and Judah in the south with the two tribes. And so the question that we should consider and learn from is why did things go so wrong? The Bible actually gives us this answer. You know, the people in Israel, they blamed everybody but themselves. They even blamed God. They blamed the Philistines who kept raiding them from the West. They blamed the Edomites who kept raiding them from the South. They blamed the Moabites raiding them from the East and the Syrians raiding them from the North. And, and then they saw that their land was being increasingly ravished and becoming desolate right before their eyes but they couldn't see that the real people to blame was themselves and nobody else. But God had told them plainly that if they remained obedient to him, that he would keep them safe from all attack. But as we know, the people had become disobedient. So God allowed the attackers to come and make life difficult and then ultimately to take their land from them. And so the prophets from Isaiah to Malachi, they were people who were sent to say one thing, you know, the dangers outside are due to disobedience inside. And that message, it sums up pretty much the message of the prophets. They came to say that you're to blame for your troubles. Nobody else. If you were right with God, then things would be right for you. But a person that comes to say, you know, it, it's your fault, that's not going to be a popular preacher which is why the Bible says God sent prophets and they laughed and they mocked at them. They persecuted them and they wouldn't listen. One of the most awful things that said in chapter one, verse two, and I think that we can relate to it best when we think of parenting our own children. You know, there are many young people who really make terrible decisions, not thinking about how their decisions are going to affect, um, you know, themselves in the future, not considering how their parents are going to feel. And so we can hear the heart of our father saying this about the children. Listen, O heavens, pay attention, earth. This is what the Lord says. The children I raised and cared for have rebelled against me. This is a charge that God has dealt with in the past. 
And as a good father, he's chastised his children, which means he's punished them. He's disciplined them. But now, frankly, he says that it's gotten to the point where he can't punish them anymore. He says, why should, should you be stricken again? You'll revolt even more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. In essence, he's saying, why should I keep punishing, punishing you? The more I correct you, the more you rebel. I mean, when you just think about how many chances God had given, when we look in scriptures, he had given them chance after chance after chance, but there came a point where he was no longer going to strive with them because he realizes this. Why should I keep giving you chances? The more I give you chances, the more you revolt. That's what he says. And you would think that people who were in rebellion against God and were literally estranged from him, that they actually wouldn't even worship. But the really peculiar fact of the human race is that we are incurably religious. You know, we read now starting in verse 11 to 16 in chapter one, that although they hadn't gotten away from God in their hearts, the temple or that they had, I'm sorry, they had gotten away from God in their hearts, but the temple was packed. They had no shortage of sacrifices. They still had their held their religious feast. They still burned their incense. They brought the blood of rams, bulls, and goats. So basically, religion was booming. And so we need to learn this lesson. Just because religion is booming doesn't mean that people are near God. Full churches don't mean that people are near to him. And we need to know that religion doesn't mean godliness. We can go through all the outside presentation without having anything on the inside. But God looks at the heart. And we need to make sure that our heart is right with God when we come to worship him and to pray. Here's what the Lord had to say. He says, what makes you think that I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I'm sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they are all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. Wow. Wow. This means don't bring a sacrifice without faith and repentance. Otherwise, you're just doing it in vain, and it's absolutely absolutely meaningless. He continues in verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and disobedient, you shall eat of the good land. But if you refuse and rebel, I'm sorry, that was supposed to say, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So the first question that we really should ask from every church gathering is what has God gotten out of it? 
what was it to him? It doesn't really matter whether we've had a good time in church. The important question is, did God have a good time? Has he been blessed? Has he been glorified? Have our prayers and our praise, our praise reached him and have they pleased his heart? The people in Isaiah's day, you know, they might've come away from the temple saying things like, you know, that was a, that was a great service this morning. It was packed. Everybody was there. And did you see all those sacrifices? The music and the incense, you know, wasn't that great. And in these scriptures, it seems that the Lord is saying, I didn't have a good time. I was fed up with it because it's not authentic. God wants people who realize they're in the wrong, people who will wash themselves and clean themselves up. And we do this through faith in Jesus and repentance. That's our part. Then he says, cease to do evil and learn to do good. Well, we can only learn to do good if we're in the word, but that's what repentance is. It's turning away from our sinful life and seeking good. As Jesus said, you know, when he was walking the earth and with the sinners, he would say, go and sin no more. When people came to John the Baptist and asked, uh, they asked him to baptize them. John said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And the New Living Translation says it this way. It says, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe for we're descendants of Abraham. This means nothing. That's the New Testament. But I want to jump ahead uh, really quickly to chapter 58 in the midst of this point and give you another instance of the Lord addressing the wrong kind of worship. And he begins by telling the prophet Isaiah to lift up his voice like a trumpet. Well, you can't ignore a trumpet. He says, shout with the voice of a trumpet blast. Shout aloud. Don't be timid. Tell my people Israel of their sins. Isaiah is virtually being told, let your voice be a warning to them. Let your voice tell them that something is terribly wrong. Something dangerous is very near. That's a real, that's really strong language, you know, and pastors like that are usually not very popular preachers who shout like a trumpet, but that's what the prophet's told to do because they won't realize they're wrong unless he gets loud about it. They honestly think they're good people. And that's why he's got to blast at them. They believe that they're a nation that does righteousness. Verse two says, yet they act so pious. They come to the temple every day and seem delighted to learn all about me. These are amazing statements that we see coming from the heart of the Lord. You know, they, it says they went to the worship service every day, not just once a week. But every day, it says they were enjoying studying the word of God, basically, because they were coming every day. They delighted in it because they thought they were righteous people. We have to be careful here. We can think that because we're going to church and because we're doing Bible study regularly, you know, that God is hearing all of our prayers. But we have to test ourselves where our heart is with the Lord. Are we genuine? Are we authentic in this? The prophet Isaiah, you know, was a devastating trumpet voice who was saying the ritual is not righteousness. Religious observance and religious activities, even when you enjoy them, they don't make you a righteous person. And this is one of the most important lessons that I think we also need to learn. So back to chapter one of Isaiah, 
you know, as it closes, it closes with a strong warning and the destruction of the transgressors and the sinners shall be together and they that forsake the Lord shall be consumed. I just want you to notice here that there's two groups, rebels and sinners. Oh, I'm sorry, rebels. Yeah, rebels and sinners, which is those who desert the, and those who desert the Lord. So sorry, rebels and sinners and those who desert the Lord. Um, and in the New Testament, Jesus said something similar. He said, remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. Fruit For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. I don't even really need to comment much further. I think the Holy Spirit can just point out to us some of the similarities here. These categories of people that the Lord is speaking of, it's not only sinners. He's talking about transgressors, those that forsake the Lord and sinners. Chapter two concerns another vision that God gave Isaiah. And it begins with the future house of God. Isaiah, he is, um, he's astonished because he sees something that he's never seen in his life. He sees people from all the nations of the world. And so the Jews of that era, which was 700 years before Jesus came, they had never seen this. They had only saw, seen, you know, streams of Jews coming up to the temple. So the remarkable thing that he's describing here is this picture of the Gentiles seeking the God of Jacob. Then there's the shift, and he refers to the divine event of the Lord's return and the condition of the people leading up to that day. He talks about people putting their trust in money, military power, and even idols. And there are two kinds of idolatry that we can find, you know, for ourselves in terms of understanding in scripture. And one is to worship something God has made, whether it's a tree, a mountain, or a river. And the other is to trust in something that God has made. You know, today, many people idolize human achievements, thinking too highly of what we, we have made and what we've done. We've put our trust in our own power, the power of our hands and our minds, thinking that we can get ourselves out of trouble with our own abilities. And the result of idolatry was that men were proud of themselves, proud of their money, their armies, their idols. But God can bring everything that is high down to the ground. And this is what he tells Isaiah, for the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. From studying the men, we turn to the children, and God says that he's going to remove from the land all those who restrain the young people and guide the nation. And that would ultimately result in anarchy and chaos and people oppressing one another. And so we're shown in chapter three, verses four to seven, a breakdown of society. He's talking about young people with older leaders that have experience and wisdom, trying to get those leaders from among themselves, but they won't take the job because there's too much chaos. The very look on their faces gives them away. You know, they display their sin like the people of Sodom and don't even try to hide it. They are doomed. 
says the Lord. They have brought destruction upon themselves. They tell or tell the godly that all will be well for them. They will enjoy the rich reward they have earned, but the wicked are doomed for they will get exactly what they deserved. And I wanted to point out how chapter three begins. For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts. That's the New King James Version. And not just once, but twice it's said. There's this intentional emphasis here. Behold the Lord, the Lord. In other words, consider that you're dealing with God. It's the Lord who's communicating with you. And the very same verse in the NIV translation says, see now the Lord, the Lord Almighty is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, all supplies of food and all supplies of water. He wanted them to know that this was God who was about to bring disaster upon them. And he's saying twice, understand who you're dealing with, the Lord, the Lord. In chapter five, Isaiah is singing a story about a vineyard. And it doesn't say this directly in the Bible, but it makes me wonder if the people that Isaiah was preaching to, if they were getting maybe tired of hearing him preach. So maybe he was trying another way to get them to listen. It's true that sometimes people who won't look like, you know, don't like to listen to sermons, maybe they'll listen to a song. So he's singing. And so let's read what he says. He says, now I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. And notice that it was a love song. Isaiah spoke of his lover who had a vineyard and he had to look after it. He was also singing as if he were a girl. And it would have caused the people who were listening, you know, carefully to wonder what in the world is he singing about? So here's what he says. Now I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared its stones and planted it with the best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower and carved a wine press in the nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that grew were bitter. He did everything he could for the vineyard. What happened? He didn't get a single good grape out of it. Then in the next verse of the song, Isaiah stops using the word he, and he starts using the word I. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I've not already done? When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? They must have started wondering at this point, you know, who's he singing about? Is this his own vineyard? He told us he had a lover and he said, you know, he says now he's saying I, and the love song gets kind of like Alice in Wonderland would say, curiouser and curiouser as they listen to what was happening in the story. So at this point, Isaiah appealed to their judgment and he got them on his side. It was really pretty smart, you know, using the form of teaching that we know as a parable, which is um, a teaching device to get people to make a decision and a judgment about something before they actually realize what it is. And then it enables them to come to your side mentally before you challenge them morally. So what Isaiah is communicating is this. I want to judge you now. What should I do about my vineyard? Is there anything more that I could have done or that I have done, <clears throat> haven't done that I could have done? You know, I can hear the crowd shouting, you know, no, no. Then what shall I do with my vineyard? And now he moves on to 
sing the next verse of this, you know, kind of strange love song. And he says, now, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will tear down its hedges and let it be destroyed. I will break down its walls and let the animals trample it. I will make it a wild place where the vines are not pruned and the ground is not hoed, a place overgrown with briars and thorns. I will command the clouds to drop no rain on it. So we could imagine, you know, the people in the crowd saying to themselves, well, you know, that's just what I do too. There's nothing more you can do. You've, you've tried to plant. I just try to plant somewhere else. There must be something wrong with that soil. You'll never get any grapes from there. But then they hear him sing, I will command the clouds not to rain on it. That must have surprised them. Who does he think he is to say he's going to command the clouds to stop raining? So let's think, look at four things that he said that would have surprised or puzzled them. He talked about the lover as he, you know, the vineyard, he said, the choice vines produce bitter grapes and some translations say wild grapes. Then Isaiah stopped talking about he and started saying I as if it were his own vineyard that he was singing about. And finally, he was going to tell the rain not to rain on his vineyard. And so up to this point, he carried the crowd with him curiously out of curiosity, I guess. But now he turns the whole thing around on them and he says, you're the vineyard and the Lord is the owner of it. That is brilliant preaching. It has people making a decision making a moral judgment first, and then telling them, this is you I'm talking about. The prophet Nathan, he actually used a similar method with King David. The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. Isaiah is telling them, I've been singing about you and God. He sung as though he were a woman because the relationship is between God and Judah, his people. And it was like a relationship between a husband and a wife. And what Isaiah has been saying to them was this. What more could God have done for you than what he's done? He's brought you into this fertile land of Canaan protected you against your enemies, sent the law to you, sent prophets to you, priests, kings. He's provided every single thing you need. He, you know, has his own watchtower in the middle, which is his temple, and yet nothing but bitter and wild grapes. And I, I apply that to my own heart. What more could God have done for any of us than he's already done? We need to actually answer that. What more could he have done for you than he's done, you know, to make you one of his holy people? It means that every one of us is as holy as we want to be. No more and no less. God has done his part. He's done everything that he could do to make us holy, to set us free from sin, to make our lives what they're meant to be, which is why scriptures tell us that we have everything we need as it pertains to godliness, holiness and godliness. So now let's look at the bitter grapes, the sins of Judah, because Isaiah, having gained their interest and attention of, of the audience, he's now going to tell them what the wild grapes really are. The first wild grapes mentioned are those people who've given their lives to material pursuits, business, pleasure, 
and sometimes both. People who basically lived for business, you know, this is obviously nothing new or old. People who live for pleasure and don't notice what God's doing. They don't know about God's business or God's pleasure because they're too busy with their own. This doesn't mean that it's wrong to be a business person or to enjoy the pleasures of life. What I'm saying here is that if your own pleasure is the first consideration, that's the problem. You know, God's pleasure will go unnoticed. And Isaiah was telling them that they don't um, need or they, they don't actually see what God is doing. They were oblivious and unaware of his activity. So he says they furnish wine and lovely music at their grand parties, lyre, lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, but they never think about the Lord or notice what he's doing. So here's the first group of people mentioned here, you know, people who say, let God prove himself to me, let God do something, you know, then we'll see. But they're so busy with their business and pleasure that they wouldn't see if he did. How many people noticed when God sent his son to Bethlehem? How many people were aware of what was happening? Yet God had been preparing them for nearly 2,000 years for that, writing it in the scriptures and the prophets foretelling this to come, but they didn't notice this first coming. And the second group of wild grapes are those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The third group he mentions are those who think that they know everything. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. You can disagree with an unbeliever and find out you know, how common this is. And honestly, though, I say this with all humility, because even when we are called to minister, maybe to help disciple other people, we, I have to check my own heart, not to get haughty or proud or think I know. I, I just know the one who knows. That's what I know. And, and we have to depend on the Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us. And no, we are not wise in our own eyes. We should not be wise in our own sight. And fourth, he mentions those whose thinking is affected by drinking. And it's interesting that Isaiah mentions wine twice in this chapter. First is an example of those who live for pleasure. And second, as those who drink excessively to the extent that their minds are affected by it, especially when they're affecting other people. What, what sorrow for those who are heroes at drinking wine and boast about all the alcohol they can hold. They take bribes to let the wicked go free and they punish the innocent. This is what has been produced in the Lord's vineyard all wild grapes. And do you know what it means in the New Testament when it says God is light? What's the opposite of light? There's no darkness in him. He's holy. First John 1, 7 says, walk in the light in the New King James Version. And in the NLT, it says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Light is holiness. And I've heard many sermons on the love of God and few on the light of God. When we meet God, the first thing that we're going to notice is the holy light of God, God's utter purity, his utter righteousness, 
his cleanness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I don't think we can ever really understand the love of God until we see his holiness. Isaiah saw God, and that was the first thing he saw. In chapter 6, Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on a throne. Beginning in verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, one on each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, the prophet of God, has just pronounced the curse of God on his own nation. Woe to you, he told them. Now he's saying, woe is me. Notice that Isaiah, he wasn't realizing sinfulness in anything he'd been doing, but in what he'd been saying. Is there anyone, you know, who can, who can say that I've always said and done the right things. I've always spoken kindly of others. I've always been silent when I should have been, and I've always spoken up when I should have. There's not one of us with clean lips. And after first seeing the holiness, the light of God, it was this contrast within himself that caused Isaiah to become so aware of his sin as he stood in the presence of pure holiness. Next, he saw one of those angels take a pair of tongs and take a red hot coal from the altar, the place for sacrifice for sin. And imagine, you know, if you saw an angel with a red hot coal coming straight for your face, Isaiah was told that his guilt was taken away and his sin was atoned for when that red hot coal touched his mouth. Then one of the seraphims flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which had, he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Then he heard God say something um, the father said. Whom shall I send? And whom will go for us? Do you recall in Genesis where it says, let us make man in our image? The father was speaking to the son and the spirit. This is an awesome verse pointing to the Trinity, you know, that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one and the same, you know, and people do sometimes struggle with it, this idea from that logical standpoint, how they can all be the same. But I believe we can understand it better when we consider even just some of the natural illustrations we have, like water, H2O, and how it can be a liquid, solid, or a gas, water, ice, or steam. They're all one and the same but they're taking on a different form. This is a good way for us to comprehend the Trinity. You know, even when we look at ourselves, we are mind, body, and soul. Is your mind you? Is your soul you? Is your body you? But they're all different forms of you. So I hope that that gives you a little bit of something to meditate on as you're thinking about the Trinity. But 
after the father asked, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Isaiah, because he had at that point been forgiven and cleansed, he could say, here am I, send me. And now comes the second half of chapter six. God let Isaiah know quite plainly that when he went the first time, his ministry would be a failure. The people, he says, aren't going to listen to him or they're not going to understand. They would look but never see the point. That sounds pretty frustrating for any preacher, to say the least. You know, you're going to tell people what God wants them to know, but no one's going to understand. And worse than this, Isaiah was told that his preaching is going to make them worse off. It would actually cause them to be hardened. The more he preached, the harder they would be. But God still wanted him to go and preach. And I've noticed that when someone is um, has their mind settled to just live life their own way, living for business or pleasure or something else, every time they hear a sermon preached, they get harder and harder until sometimes at the end of the sermon, they're sitting there kind of like granite. You know, the word of God either softens your heart or it hardens it. You will not and cannot stay the same. You're either nearer to the Lord, softened by his word, or hardened by it as you resist it. We can't be neutral with his word. And Isaiah, he really had also an awful experience of seeing his congregations get harder and harder. He, He actually got to witness that. And he preached for 60 years. He died without his ministry being appreciated by those hearers of his. But now his words are precious, precious as gold to countless people all over the world. He had tried everything he could to make his hearers interested. He asked the Lord, how long, you know, would I I have to preach like this if it's just going to make them harder? And the answer was that it would be until their country was desolate. And he preached for 60 years until their homes were desolate and most of the land was a deserted wasteland. He saw the people get further and further from God, but he preached because God said, go and tell this people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. These words of Isaiah are quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and even Acts. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is quoting these words in parables. When Jesus told parables, it hardened people. It drove many people further from the truth. Parables were not nice stories to get them nearer to God. They were actually intended to harden the hearts of those who already set their heart against the truth. And sermons still do this if a person has determined never to come to God, never to respond. The disciples asked Jesus, why did he speak in parables? And we find his answer in Matthew 13, verse 13. That is why I use these parables, for they look, but they don't really see. They hear, but they don't really listen or understand. Have you ever um, seen an area of land that's been devastated with maybe only a few tree stumps that are left remaining? Maybe a place where there's been a forest fire and there doesn't seem to be any signs of life you know, growing anywhere. If you go back there in a year's time, you'll see the old tree stumps, You know that leaves begin to start shooting out of it. There's, they start to grow in a few years. And over time, it'll be a wooded land even again. And so even though Isaiah saw the vineyard devastated 
and just left as stumps. In chapter six, verse 13, he's told that the holy seed will be the stump in the land. If even a tenth, a remnant survive, it will be invaded again and burned. But as a terabith or oak tree leaves a stump when it's cut down, so Israel's stump will be a holy seed. From Israel's disobedience and desolation would come a shoot. This idea gripped Isaiah, and later he applied it to Jesus. He said, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. The stump of Jesse will seem to have been cut down and destroyed, but there will be a little shoot, and from it a Savior. Unto us a son is given, unto us a child is born. And when a baby was born at Bethlehem of Judea, it was the shoot from the stump of Jesse, from the ruins of Israel, our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that it's marvelous that in the most awful condemnation of men's sin anywhere in the Bible, we find a glimmer of God's plan for the future to bring something out of that chaos, to bring a remnant to his son. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. Amen. Amen. So I'm closing here with just a couple last slides just for things that we can meditate on from the lessons that we get in this journey through Isaiah. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God and he will freely pardon. Repentance is not being sorry, but it includes being sorry enough to stop. That's the difference. It's something that you do and not something that you feel. You know, although you will likely feel conviction from the Holy Spirit, you still have to respond to the conviction. And why repent? The answer is right here in the scripture. It's so he will have mercy upon you. God's mercy can only come to the penitent. That's why we repent. People who think that God's mercy is for all, they're mistaken. God's mercy is for those who repent. God demands righteousness. The wicked cannot and will not go to heaven. And all of us have been wicked in God's sight. But God will take to heaven the righteous person who keeps his commandment. But who can do that? None of us. So God will accept in place of righteousness the humble and contrite heart, and will give peace and healing to those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ as the sinless son of God who died in our place to pay the penalty of our sin, acknowledging him as high and holy. The high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one says this, I live in the high and lofty place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. He's able to do this because of the cross, because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which God has accepted to atone for the sins of those who repent. And with that, I'm going to stop my screen share. And just invite you all into a little bit of discussion um, over what we've just heard from the book of Isaiah, just the, the parallels that we see from scripture. I just want to hear 
what the Holy Spirit might be speaking to your heart. I don't have a particular question for you, but I'd just like to invite you for comments. It's not necessarily on my delivery because frankly, all glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his word that he has promised would not return void. And so I'm just wondering, what is he speaking to your heart as you've heard these things? Um, it amazes me, and I use that word lightly in that, you know, reminding myself always that God is the one that knows the very motives of my heart. And as you said, there are times and there are circumstances and situations where I don't always necessarily want to. And it's just really saying, God, you know, I know I should, but I really don't. And he always comes and brings that because worship flows from the heart. And what helps me in that is, you know, one of the things that I do is, um, you know, again, reminding because Isaiah is perfect in so much of what you said, I agree. But also when I read scripture, I see what the scripture tells me and God identifies who he is. Isaiah is endless, endless uh, information you can get from the book of Isaiah to be able to hollow and proclaim the name of who and who God is. And when I do that, the more I do that, then worship begins to flow like a river because he is that living water. You know, I, I love the things that are said in Isaiah, in Isaiah when it tells you, you know, he's the one that established the boundaries of the water, you know? You think about those things, you know? He is the one that created the heaven, the earth, the stars, the moons, all of these things. I Just recently, I was reading in reference to, you know, it said that, you know, the, the water won't, won't cross its boundaries, but yet you talk about mankind, you know, we do not obey God, you know, in the essence is saying, well, what's up with that? You know, why is that so? Uh, again, taking the word of God, allowing the word to bring forth who God is and the better I see God, then the greater it is in my ability to be able to, to do so. And to know when my heart is not in alignment and bringing it back because it is worship. I love the fact that he didn't want robots. That's why he didn't create us to be robots. I love the fact that he didn't make us it's because we get to do it, you know? We get to worship him. We get to serve him. We get to fellowship with him. We, we, we get to do these things. I am so grateful for that. And I love what you said earlier in reference to Isaiah. Isaiah's sin was not based on what he was doing. It was based on what he was saying, amen. And so when his sin was identified, he said, well, unto me, I live among those who have unclean lips and I'm a man of unclean lips because sin is not necessarily the action of doing. It is the thought and the very motivation of our heart. And God is looking for a pure heart and uh, it keeps me, not every day, but it keeps me from falling because I remember it's not what I'm doing, the performances, it is the condition of my heart. Last thing is when you said that a church full of people doesn't mean that everybody in there and God is with them, it's not. We were created, in fact, it is in Jeremiah, it says that man was created to be led 
Amen. That means that if we're not being led by God, we're going to be led by something. And there are two primary spirits that are out there. So uh, ceremonial rituals of religion is a part of our very nature. But God was never interested in that. How do we know? Because the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and all the motherites had that. And it was an abomination to God. What God has always wanted and desires from each of us is just pure worship because we recognize, we identify who he is and we willingly do it because our hearts overflow with love for him. Amen. And speaking of sins of the lips, you know, this is where I've, I know I fall short in that. And so I, I this is where like from a repentance standpoint, his mercies are new every morning. Like we should be striving to be holy as, as he is holy is what the word tells us. But we're able to do that because we're putting on the righteousness of Christ every morning when I bring those things into account. When I confess them before the Lord, I'm keeping the short list. That's, you know, that's the place where we can be clean. We can be, we can be absolutely confident of where we're standing every new morning or throughout our day. If when the Holy Spirit convicts us, if we just deal with that with the Lord and instead of continuing in it and being willful in it, we recognize it, bring it before the Lord, say we're sorry and mean it and do our best to not do it again. Amen. Yeah, I'll share a little bit. I appreciate tonight's teaching, Krista and um, I mean, I love the gospel of Isaiah. It's just remarkable. The, the contrast of, of the judgment of God and then the promise of restoration that it's almost just these two streams that he's going back and forth of, you know, the righteousness of God and his, just his pain and anguish over the sin of the people and constantly calling out to them to return. And then the, the goodness of God and the promise of hope uh, restored. And, and obviously he telescopes all the way out into the ministry of Jesus and um, and the coming heavens, new heavens and the new earth, even he telescopes all the way to the very end of the story uh, at the end, chapter 66. But, uh, you know, your, your question of does it resonate, you know, to do empty religious rituals and to have a hard heart in the midst of pursuing God. And, and yes, I think that resonates um, with me in different seasons. I think the Jesus addressed it, you know, the, the spirit's willing, the flesh is weak. You know, we, we, we go and we fail in these ways. Um, and I'm comforted by the parable actually that Jesus tells of the vineyard owner. He's got two sons and he says to one, uh, you know, go to the vineyard and, and work. And he says, I'll go. And then doesn't go. And he says to the other, go to the vineyard and work. And he says, no. And then he ends up going. And Jesus just asks a simple question, which son was, was faithful and obedient. And, and I, that comforts me in this, in the security of the relationship that Jesus teaches that we have with our heavenly father. It's almost like, you know, he's anticipating, uh, you know, he, know, he knows our hearts really, really well, and he knows we blow hot and cold. Um, and he wants us to come to him, as, as you say, the, the way out isn't to run away or pretend that that's not going on, but it's, it's through honesty, confession, 
transparency and the security of a loving relationship with our heavenly father, that we lay that down and just say, man, you know, Lord, help me uh, turn over the fallow ground of my heart, um, which obviously Jeremiah is going to take us there. Uh, <laughs> as that's what, that's one of the words that God gives Jeremiah for Israel, you know, the turn over that fallow ground that, that I think the hardness of the human heart is universal. And, uh, you, you know, it's not to say to your point, you don't stay there, but I think to be honest and just all of us can, can resonate with that truth of like, yes, there are times we have to push through. And, and I, I think about, uh, this hit me when I was, uh, living in Israel, uh, the reality of, you know, like, like a rocket ship has to punch through a lot of friction to get into the atmosphere, right? And there's times where worship and prayer, it feels very easy to enter in, and it's like a very thin atmosphere. And then there's times, I don't know if you're, maybe I'm just, maybe it's just me, but um, where it's like, man, it's taking a lot longer to punch through and break through. Um, and, and why is that? And, and I think there's a, there's a, a number of reasons why there could be a, a kind of a thicker atmosphere that we have to punch through. Some of it is our own stuff, uh, where we've got to punch through our own thoughts. We've got to settle our own soul down. We've got to kind of tend our own heart and, and just deal with whatever's going on, put aside the circumstances, put aside the frustrations, put aside the disappointments, whatever it is and, and deal with it. And I think as human beings, we just stuff our stuff down and we just kind of gut through life. And, and that's what the enemy wants. And that's what our flesh wants. And, and the Lord just wants us to kind of continue to come through and have that, have that honest, like you said, Krista, that honest and authentic relationship with him. Um, so anyway, I'm kind of rambling, but you guys get my point. I just wanted to acknowledge your question. You know, does that resonate? And I, and I, have, I would have to say, yes, there are, there are times where it's, we've, I've got to punch through, I've got to bring my heart before the Lord and just say, okay, help me, help me to break down whatever's going on and confess whatever I need to confess. But I'm going to come to you as that heavenly father that, you know what, even when I've said no, even when I've wrestled with you and I've, I've gone to the vineyard at the end, you're right there to, to say, hey, thanks for, thanks for doing what, what you know was right to do. It's not how you start the race all the time. It's how you finish it. Amen. Bless you guys. Great job, Krista. Amen to that about it's how you finish it. Isn't that the key? I mean, we see that over and over through the New Testament as well. You know, that it's the one who endures to the end. And, you know, we see other parables like, you know, that we have to, the one who wins the race is the one who competes according to the rules. You know, it's, there's so many things about just finishing well. So that's another thing. I think that that's, where the body of Christ is such a benefit and a blessing for each one of us to be encouraged and to have, you know, for that encouragement with one another to remind us and encourage us in the word of the Lord to keep pressing on because life can be challenging. And we have these seasons, just like you're speaking of Jed. And I really love that you brought up that um, parable of the vineyard Um because I, that one has resonated with me as well. I found myself in that place where I've, I've said no to the Lord, like not directly, like I didn't ne necessarily hear him, but I knew it was something that I felt like maybe I should do, but I just didn't want to. And then ultimately I just was, you know, following the leading of the Holy spirit 
to say yes, you know, and it's like initially though, I I didn't feel like it or didn't want to, or I had other plans or whatever the case may be, but there's been multiple times. So that same story resonates in my heart as well. It's, you know, it's just about ultimately finishing well, making the right choices and choosing him, you know, just choosing our first love at the end of the day. Is there anyone else that would like to share? Perseverance. Um, That's, that's really what I got. But um, going through those same, it's just, yeah, (laughs) each one of you articulated something that I am having a hard time putting into words. (laughs) So thank you all for sharing. I appreciate it. Um, Amen. And thank you for sharing too, Lois. I just love when, when you guys do participate and jump in because we're family, you know, we're just having a talk at the table. So please feel free to continue to share if you have any thoughts or comments. The other thing that's good about us sharing with one another is it just allows us to connect with one another's hearts, even though we're in different places. So it's really beautiful thing. I'm just, I'm learning to enjoy the journey with him with the ups and downs, the hills and valleys and, and all that I have to go through as long as I know he is with me in all those circumstances. So thank you for this, this word today um, that really resonated with me. I learned uh, um, some things that I didn't know before. And Jerem, um, uh, Isaiah is one of my favorite books too. I mean, it's one of my favorite books. Um, so thank you. Thank you. Amen. Thanks for sharing. He is so faithful. You know, he is even in those seasons. And, and, you know, I think the other thing about reading the Bible is that um, it helps us to learn to not rely on our emotions, you know, because our emotions can fool us. And when we're in those seasons and that's where the enemy can get a foothold because he sees those weak moments and he's a devourer. He comes and just like you said, all these things hit me because he he's been studying, you know, he, he looks for those moments, but God is greater. And greater is he within you. And so it's like just reminding and declaring the word, the promises of God over our situation without standing on the feelings we have. We're going to stand on his word, his promises, his truth, and look to that. And that is, I think, though, that that's part of the process of sanctification because it's bringing us into a maturity in the Lord when we're able to walk with him in that way where we're no longer on the milk and living in the emotions. And and even if we don't feel him, we know he's there. We know he's faithful. We know this is true. All of these things. And so despite what it's like or feels like, we're going to press on through because we believe God. And that's really, that's the faith of Abraham. It was that he believed the Lord and what he said, and that was accounted to him as righteousness. Amen. Um, Jed. As we're talking about all this, you're, you're making such a great point. You know, we, we live we live and move and have our being in him. We stand on his word, not our feelings and not our emotions. And, and, you know, how we see ourselves and how we see other people, Jesus is wanting us, is wanting to train us to see him and to see one another and to see ourselves the way he sees us. And he just doesn't, his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. And obviously in Isaiah, Um, but you know, when, when Peter failed, he, he denied his best friend and he didn't just deny his best friend three times And the scripture says he actually swore that he did not know Jesus. So that's not a, that's not a light thing biblically to swear an oath. Um, and, and I think this is why Peter is so broken hearted 
in that moment when he denies Jesus and he, he goes back to fishing, he, he's done, but Jesus, you know, when he knew that, that Peter was going to fail, he said, Satan has asked to sift you. Um, I've prayed for you. And when you return, strengthen the brothers. And so even though Peter was going to fail, and even though Jesus was Peter's best friend uh, and loved him, he, he didn't allow Peter's failure. He didn't put him in the failure box. And that wasn't Peter's identity with Jesus. And I think there's a lesson there for us on, on how do we see other people when they fail us or when we fail? How do we see ourselves? And, you know, three months later, Peter is preaching the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. Um, and, you know, Jesus, I mean, this, if you've ever thought about this, I mean, what happens? He, Peter goes up to the, to the Galilee and he's fishing and Jesus comes up and actually he doesn't say anything at first. If you remember the story, he greets them from the beach waves at them and they don't know who it is right away and then he tells them to cast the net on the other side again and he re he re uh redoes a miracle of the miraculous catch of fish and so he actually blesses peter's business peter's, peter's a commercial businessman and he's denied jesus and broken his heart broken he's actually taken an oath that he doesn't he never knew jesus and the first interaction that Jesus has with Peter is to bless his business. Not a little bit. He blessed him in, with an incredible catch. And you look at Peter's heart. You know, when he jumps out of the boat, he's so excited to see Jesus. He has to get in the water. And, and I think that story that is there to just encourage all of our hearts to see ourselves and to see others that are struggling. It's not the end of the story. And you're not, you're not, Jesus doesn't, identify you solely by your moments of failure but he sees who you are called to be and he's praying he's praying for all of us to overcome and to enter into the father's purpose and destiny for our lives but i also think that we also have to remember that there is an enemy and not that he's greater than god he isn't but there is the grip of darkness and the grip of darkness does not want any of us to succeed in what God is doing. So there are times when I myself can't pray for whatever reason, but there are territorial spirits that are over a land and they influence our ability to be able to penetrate that area and how easily and effectively we can pray as well. Amen. So really looking and understanding, even in the times of Isaiah, it's a 3D. You can see God because God is clearly identified. Then God is working with Isaiah and with man, but there is still another force that is there trying to interfere. Every fight that we have is a war against our destiny. God knows exactly what his plan and his purpose is, why you were born and why you came into this world. He has an enemy and that enemy does not want us to succeed. It is also the reason why Jesus made the comments that he did. They that endure, endurance means you're gonna go through something and have to overcome it. I just want to share this because I don't want it to seem like it's simply because we decide we don't wanna go, we didn't wanna go, whatever. There is a force. I know that in Uganda on Prayer Mountain, it's an open heaven. It was before, before COVID. I could go there and pray 
and the present come in seconds. New York City is totally different. Florida is different from New York, and so is Greenville, South Carolina. There is forces that are fighting against us, and there is that grip of darkness that comes in the form of woundedness, that can come in the form of uh, my own personal rejection, all kinds of things. God is greater, amen, but there isn't there isn't always just because my heart is not pure with God that I can't pray. So I don't want us to set that as a, because um, it's not the case. There are times when my heart is absolutely right, but because of the grip of darkness and the forces that are over the land, because there are territory spirits that do not want you to pray, they're fighting against you. Amen. Glory be unto God. And what we have to do in those times is press in, press on, and continue, and God will give us the breakthrough. Are there times when I just wake up, I don't want to pray? Yeah, but there are other times, i.e., it is harder to pray in Dubai than it is in Israel. It's harder to pray in Israel than it is in Uganda and other places that I've been. So again, seeing the Bible from the 3D perspective, because it's there. That's why Genesis chapter three, the enemy had shown up and he was warring against their destiny. That same enemy exists today and he's fighting us. Amen. But the deeper we can go into the Lord and the, the more we're able to know that God is with us, God is for us, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to fight. That's why Paul said, I fought the good fight of faith. I stayed the course. I ran the race. Amen. So again, understanding the grip of darkness is real and it is the enemy wants to keep us from obeying and doing the things of God. Amen. Amen. I feel like we've had a whole cross section of um, from milk to meat tonight. So there's got to be something for everybody. The Lord is so good to us. And I know his word has not returned void. Praise the Lord. So it is the top of the hour, and I'm going to close us out here in a moment and ask if perhaps Pastor Shira could pray if you're able to, uh, Sister Shira. And I also wanted to mention that Pastor Sylvia and I um, will not be on next week. We're actually amazingly, which is blessing the Lord for the opportunity, going to be on our way to Kenya. Um, and we're going to be meeting Jed and Nicole, um, the following week in Liberia. And we still would like to ask you all to continue to pray with us for the Bibles to make it. We don't know if they absolutely will, but we believe and know that God is able to do it. So it'll just be a matter of what is his will. And we want to just continue to pray and ask you to pray with us fervently over this, uh, next couple of weeks one for our safety and travels, as well as um, for the people that we will be meeting with and just for the Lord's will to be done. And um, if we can ask you for that and and um, and praying that these Bibles would make it there if possible, if it's the Lord's will, because he can certainly get them there. Um, even if he transports them in the spirit, we know it can happen. So um, we would like them to come at that particular time of the conference because it seems that it will be easier to distribute them to the people. But if for some reason that is a, the Lord has some different plan, then we know he is able to as well.
get them distributed. So we're just rejoicing, though, that there are 5,000 Bibles on the way, and the Lord has answered our prayer. And so we do want to just bless his holy name. He has been so good and so faithful, and he's hearing um, He's hearing us. And so we're excited about that. Um, Pastor Shira, are you able to, um, to pray for us as we close tonight? Yes, yes, I would love to. A few things I want to say before I pray. Um, you know, in scriptures, when God created the heavens and the earth, and there was deep darkness, but the spirit of God was hovering. And um, even in John chapter 1, he said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was God. And there was also darkness, but there was the light of God shining so bright that no darkness can comprehend. So God is bringing us to a place, yes, there are weakness, there are faults, but sometimes with all that, he still sends us out because he's saying, it's not us, it's him. So allow the light to shine so bright in you, through you, and to the people around to the nation around. Do not be shaken about the principalities. Yes, there will be many principalities that will try to intimidate. But the Lord is saying, His light, you are sent. Each one of you are sent by the Lord. And as much as you are going to be a blessing to the people there, but it's also going to be a time to know his way, his, um, his intimacy with you, how he sees you. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he says, the Lord has blessed you with all spiritual blessings for that work. So something new, something different. And um, you're going to see each other's weakness and each other's strength. And like what Pastor Jack said is, we do not look at their faults, but that's the moment where we can compliment. It's going to be a moment of complimenting one another and seeing how God is going to work in you and through you. But the reason why I say in you and through you is don't miss out. In you will carry you through. Amen. Father, Lord, I thank you, Lord. I thank you. I thank you for this wonderful word that you have given, Lord. Father, truly, indeed, your word is a lamp to their feet and a light to their path. Lord, your word also says, your word brings life. And Lord, every word that they have read about you, they have uh, rooted themselves with, Lord, Lord, let this word bird forth, bird forth, bring life to their lips, to their thoughts, to their heart, to the very core of their soul. Not only those who are going to Africa, Lord, but those who are here today. It is not accidental, Lord, that each one of us are here today. There is something, something that you want us to remember and be rooted in that is you lord you are creating a kingdom that cannot be shaken 
and whatever shaking that you're doing, you're removing it so that we can shine for you. Father, bless each one of them who's going for this trip, for this mission, and even for the time, Lord, that they are going to meet with Pastor Jack and the team, Lord. Father, we know that you have a purpose and plan. And let your will be done. Prepare their hearts, Lord, even right now. Even right now, they will have a glimpse. We know that you like to give in puzzles, Lord, pieces by piece. But Lord, help them to understand your ways every moment. Help them to know that in all that they are doing, that we all must decrease and you increase. So Lord, let them experience your increase in their life. Father, also I pray a special blessing upon Connie. Connie is the one who was feeling depressed, right? Connie, Lord, Lord, fill the Lord with your love. Your love casts out all fear. Your love casts out everything. Even any form of uh, witchcraft that is coming against the Lord. Uproot it, Lord. Uproot it. And soak each one of us in the precious blood of Jesus that no weapon formed against us will prosper. Lord, for we give you all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. It is you, Lord. It's all you, Lord. Everything that we have, everything we have done, it is your grace. It is your doing. It is you. We thank you, we praise you, and we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Every one of you who spoke to me today, God used you.